Good morning. It's kind of awesome, you know, that we start out our service with 8 to 10 people and we end up with 30, 35. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Just glad that everybody was able to make it on this. Afraid that the holidays was going to steer a lot of people away, but we're glad that you made it this morning. The title of this message this morning is Wrestling with God. We're going to take a closer look at the story of Jacob wrestling with God. This part of Jacob's story is kind of strange and confusing. It reveals some at first glance appear disturbing. It's a story that gives us a glimpse that God is more than the sweet God so often portrayed by Bible teachers today. So maybe four months ago, my wife Lisa came to me on a Friday and said, Jim, I've been praying for you. And I believe God has told me that you need to change your diet. And so two days later on Sunday morning, one of my lifelong friends, Greg Yeager, came up to me at church and said, Jim, hey, before the service starts, can I talk with you for a minute? And I said, sure. So we sat down in the back row over there and he said, Jim, I've been praying for you and I believe God has told me that you need to change your diet. Neither had spoken to each other. Both because of my previous cancer and a recent colonoscopy were praying for me out of concern for my health. After already hearing those words from Lisa, I walked away from Greg, believing God was trying to get my attention for my good. Over the last four months, I've been on a diet, and no, it's not a seafood diet where I see food and eat it, but a diet that intentionally attempts to address my addiction to sugar. You see, if I could... My diet would mostly consist of cookies, cake, donuts, candy, pie, ice cream, and soda. But I couldn't be healthy if I only ate was, was most pleasing to me. Over this period of time, I've learned to develop a palate for things that are not quite as pleasant. Fruits and vegetables and nuts and flaxseed and fish and chicken and oat milk and decaffeinated green tea with honey. Oh, I still treat myself with sweets and fast food at times, but over the last 120 days, I've lost 18 pounds and I'm feeling much better with much more energy. Sometimes it seems like contemporary Christianity feeds the Christian exclusively a diet on the sweets of God. His grace, his agape love, his forgiveness, mercy, the God of second and third chances, and we all love getting our fill on those sweets of God. But the problem is it doesn't give us the kind of diet or full picture of God that leads us to deeper spiritual health. The Bible reveals another side of God that is not so sweet. The God of compassion and also conviction. The God of mercy, but also the God of discipline. The God of encouragement and the God of rebuke. The God who can give you a, sec a sound night's sleep and the God who can keep you up at night until you get your act together. The God who answers prayers with a yes, while sometimes painfully, his answer is a resounding no. Pastor Howard John Wesley says, we serve a God who uses pain, trouble, hardship, and struggle to groom us for his glory. The difficulty in dealing with this God is you cannot choose when you will acknowledge, accept, and embrace the providential hand of God at work in your life and in your world. The God who leads you to green pastures by still waters is the same God who can surround your life with the kind of dark storm clouds that you've never seen before. The same God who centers your life on his precious promises is the same God who acts in ways that are sometimes confusing and does things that you don't understand. 
As you journey through the scriptures, occasionally you'll come across an aspect of God that is not so sweet. If you're going to grow and mature and flourish in kingdom living, then you better be ready to pursue a God who doesn't always tickle your fancy, who doesn't move upon your desire and your demand, who doesn't immediately door dash the things you've requested to you as soon as you close your prayer with amen. And this morning, just as God used Lisa and Greg to speak to me about something that was not right in my life, he wants to speak through me to you about your life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I I just stand here humbly before you as your vessel um, to share what you've taught me over this week in your word with your people. And Father, I pray that everyone who's here this morning would just know that you want to meet with them because you love them so much. You want to speak into their lives, you want to speak into their hearts, and you might want to show them something that is not quite right in their lives. So open us up, Lord, to what it is that you want to say, not to produce guilt and shame, but to know that you love us so much that if there's something that's harmful in our lives or something that is leading us to be drifting and distant from you, that you want to reveal that and and help change us. So Father, have have your way with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 32, where we're going to read verses 24 through 32. Genesis 32, verses 24 through 32. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name, the man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I've seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. So to appreciate what's happening here, I have to give you some background. Jacob is a fraternal twin of Esau, and the two boys are the epitome of sibling rivalry, where these struggle, they struggle and they jostle in the womb of their mother, Rebecca, to the point that she inquires of God what's going on and who informs her that they will be the fathers of two separate nations. One people will be stronger, but the elder will serve the younger. The boys seem to be fighting to see who's going to come out first. The first, the oldest, as firstborn son, is going to inherit all the blessings of Father Isaac's estate that he inherited from his grandfather Abraham and, and Isaac, literally all of Canaan. Esau is born first, but Jacob is holding on to his heel. There's no delay in his birth. These two boys turn out to be as different as night and day. And and parents, isn't it amazing how we can have multiple children who come from the same two biological parents who 
are from the same gene pools, who were brought up in the same home, under the same rules, experiencing the same love and care, and yet are often polar opposites. Esau was a fighter. He was a warrior, a hunter. He took after his father. He's large in statue, stature, and he's red-skinned and hairy, and he is his father's favorite son. Esau seems to live to satisfy his fussy appetites. He wants instant gratification over long-term reward. Whereas Jacob, he's fair-skinned. He's not a fan of the outdoors. He's a homebody. He's a mama's boy. He's his mother, Rebecca's favorite. And he's a schemer. He's a deceiver, a plotter, and a planner who tries to manipulate and control circumstances towards his own end. Let me just say that when parents show favoritism for one child over the other, struggle, conflict, and resentments are always waiting. And things get really bad between these two brothers. One day Esau comes home from a hunt and he's famished and he sees Jacob eating some delicious stew and he wants some for himself. Jacob, the schemer he is, convinces Esau to sell his birthright for a bowl of that stew. Esau despises his birthright to experience the instant gratification of satisfying his physical hunger even to the point of giving Jacob his birthright. Well, things get worse. Later in their lives, Isaac, their father, is old, feeble, and has lost his vision, and he's nearing the end of his life. It's time to give his oldest son his blessing, bestowing on him the rights of the firstborn and his inheritance. Isaac calls Esau to his side and says, Son, I want to give you my blessing. Fix me my favorite meal. Esau goes out to hunt so he can kill and then cook his father's favorite dinner. When Rebekah realizes Esau is gone, she quickly makes Isaac's favorite meal from what she has in the home gives it to Jacob and tells him to pretend to be Esau and feed this food to the father. His mom dresses him in some of Esau's clothes so that he smells like Esau when he's near his father. He takes some, she takes some hairy animal skin to place around his neck and arms just in case Isaac tries to touch Jacob. He'll think that he's actually touching Esau. Isaac, Isaac deceived, blesses Jacob, believing he's Esau, giving all of Esau's inheritance writes to him. And this tradition was like a king's edict. Once the father pronounces blessing upon his child, it's done. It can't be revoked, regardless of the deception. There was a lot of superstition involved as well that if he didn't follow through on his pronouncement, the family would be cursed. Esau returns, finds out what has happened, and is distraught. He cannot believe his brother would do such a thing to him. Full of anger and resentment, he vows that one day he's going to kill Jacob. Rebecca, hearing of Esau's intentions, tells Jacob to run for his life, and Jacob travels a distance to his uncle Laban's house. Jacob falls in love with his daughter Rachel and wants to marry her. Laban, her father, makes him believe he is working for her to gain her hand. After seven years, Laban tells Jacob that he could not marry off his younger daughter first, that Jacob has to marry his oldest daughter Leah, but he could work another seven years for Rachel. Laban attempts to cheat Jacob of his wages, so Jacob deceptively sets up an agreement with Laban, and he manipulates the flock so that he ends up with a greater and better flock than Laban. Laban, angry, believing he has been swindled, causes Jacob to flee to, from his uncle's house and to a land fearing his father-in-law's wrath. To know Jacob's story is to know his life was a never-ending struggle. His parents had an extremely dysfunctional marriage. 
Their favoritism led to a family with deep-seated hostility. Jacob was a con artist who had been conned, a liar who had been lied to, a manipulator who had been manipulated. In many ways, he lived up to the meaning of his name, one who follows after to supplant or deceive. Esau had vowed to kill him, which forced him to flee his home. Laban had cheated him for years, and yet when Jacob cheated him in return, Laban's anger and hostility caused Jacob to flee. Now his two wives have an adversarial relationship with each other. A total of 20 years has passed since Esau vowed to kill Jacob, and now he has only one place to go, back to Canaan, where Esau is. What a convoluted, messed up story. And to be honest with you, it's really what I love about the Bible. Story after story is about dysfunctional families and people who sin and fail and mess up repeatedly, who desperately need God to come to the rescue. And I love this so much because I'm from a dysfunctional family and I'm a person who messes things up over and over. And yet God the Father through Jesus came on a rescue mission for me. He saved me and continues to clean up the mess of a man I am. And he's been doing it for 41 years. It's been a 41-year journey of God's continuous working on me to make me into the man he wants me to be, the man I need to be for others. I shudder to think of the damage I could have done without surrendering my will to Jesus over and over and over again. On Jacob's journey back to Canaan, he prepares to meet Esau, and so he sends some messengers ahead with this message from his brother, tell Esau that in the years that we've been apart, I've accumulated great wealth and need nothing that is rightfully yours. The messengers return and inform Jacob that Esau is coming, but he's coming with 400 men. In great fear and distress, Jacob divides his family and servants and possessions into two groups, sending one group ahead of him just in case that might appease Esau to cool down a little bit as he sees the women and children approaching. Then he takes the other half and he sends them across the river so that in just in case Esau annihilates all the women and children that have gone before, at least he'll have half of them, his family and possessions, and his servants still alive across the river. Now, I don't know, but that sounds kind of despicable to me. It sounds kind of cowardly. Let's send half of my family and one of my wives and children and servants ahead to try to appease him, but if he wipes them out, at least I'm going to have the other half over there. Jacob is still the deceiver, the conniver, the plotter, the planner, attempting to control and manipulate the situation when he should be trusting God. His self-will has made a mess of things and now tries to will himself out of his desperate situation. Jacob's will is still not surrendered to God. And it's important to remember that just before this, God meets him in a dream and gives him some very precious promises. God promises Jacob his hand of blessing upon his life and his family. Jacob leaves his father and mother fleeing the wrath of his brother and he reaches Bethel and God comes to him in a dream where Jacob sees a stairway, stairway raising from the ground with its top reaching to the sky. And God's angels were going up and down on it, and it's where we get the term Jacob's ladder. It is in this dream that God shares these words with Jacob in Genesis 28. 
The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out towards the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the people on earth will be blessed through your offspring. He says, look, I am with you. I'll watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I mean, wow, can you imagine receiving this kind of promise from God during one of the most challenging and fearful times of your life? In a time when you're distressed and confused. God's promise, it covers everything. His provision, I will give you this land, and though you must leave now, I will bring you back. I will give you offspring more numerous than the grains of dust on the earth. It involves his protection. I will watch over you wherever you go. It involves his presence. I am with you. I will not leave you. That just about covers everything that Jacob needs to hear to put his trust in in God in this very difficult situation. Jacob's faith in the midst of his trial should be soaring right now. And yet somehow, as Esau, the brother who vowed to kill him, approaches with 400 men, Jacob becomes distressed and overwhelmed by fear, and he begins to frantically run around trying to manipulate and control things. In Jacob's eyes, Esau has become bigger than his God. Rather than trusting God and his promises, Jacob returns to doing things in his will, his way, trying to control people and manipulate circumstances. He tries to solve his problems without God. And I ask you now, is that not what you've been attempting to do? You see, God has declared to you, Christian, in Galatians 3.14, God redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob might come to us through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise. Through salvation in Christ, we are actually the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Jacob. And then in 1 Corinthians 1.20, Paul writes, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. We have been given in Christ so much more than Jacob could have ever received. It is because of Christ that after every prayer we can shout, Amen, so be it. Amen means we're proclaiming and embracing the very promises of God in Christ that results in the surrender of our self-will to God. How can we then, each time the dark storm clouds of trials and suffering come, be given over to anxiety and fear, attempting to solve our problems and our self-will just as Jacob has done? know how we can make such a mess of things when we try to do these things in our self-will, attempting to solve our problems apart from God. What Esau in your life right now has become bigger and stronger than your God. It is Christ's promise of his presence and his provision and protection that we run to when times are at their worst. Running away from his will for your life just leads to more pain and heartache. Let's time, it's time to break into our main text. I want to go through this kind of verse by verse. 
And let's go back to uh, Genesis 32 and let's read verse 24. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. So after we've heard the background, we can see that Jacob has made a mess of things. And his attempts to control and manipulate his way through his problems have left him all alone. His wives are gone. His children are gone. Everything he owns is gone. And nighttime comes upon him and he is alone in the dark. A man shows up to wrestle with him. And not knowing who this man is, Jacob wrestles with him for hour after hour after hour until daybreak. Maybe he thinks it's Esau who has come to sneak up on him in the middle of the night uh, to accomplish his vow to kill him. But we know from already reading the text that this man is actually God who has come in the flesh to go toe-to-toe with Jacob. Don't miss some disturbing things here about God. You see, God has shown up to fight. The Bible gives no rhyme or reason. It doesn't point out a certain sin in Jacob. He doesn't tell Jacob of some act of disobedience that he's being punished for. God just shows up to fight. And Pastor John Rusley says, this is not the God I'm used to. I like the God who shows up and says, I have heard your cry for help and have come to deliver you. I prefer the God who says, let me walk you through the valley of the shadow of death. I want to hear from the God who tells me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. This is not the God we encounter in this story. God comes in the darkness and shows up disguised as a man, leaving Jacob with confusion and uncertainty. And I know that you probably can relate to that. We've all experienced those times when we're confused and uncertain about what God is doing in our life. You know those times when God doesn't make things absolutely clear. And this is exactly where Jacob is right now. Let's read on in verse 25. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Did you get this? It says that the man who is God could not defeat him. Speaking of God, the New American Standard says that he could not prevail. The New International Version says he could not overpower him. The New Living Translation says he could not win. The message says he could not beat him. You know, wait a minute. Our theology says that God is all-powerful, that God can speak to mountains and move them anywhere he pleases, that he can say still to the water and the wind, and it stills, and that he can defeat any of his enemies and any of ours. So how is it saying here that God could not defeat him? God could not beat him? What kind of fight could God be in with humanity and not prevail? What kind of wrestling match could God have with a human being and not win? There's only one struggle with God that I know of where God doesn't always win. It's a wrestling match he has with each of us to surrender our will to him. God has gifted us with free will and choice. Created as sons of Adam, we've been given the ability to disobey God's will, and when we do, he allows us to make a mess of things, if that's what we choose. I think too many people see the Bible as some antiquated, irrelevant book 
full of strict rules and regulations established by God who's demanding to rob us of all the fun and enjoyment of life. So they blow it off. The Bible's not for me. I'm going to live the way I want to live. I'd rather see the Bible as God's established boundaries given to us by the one who made us and who loves us and knows intimately how we can best live to find true health and happiness. Boundaries given to us by a loving God to help us navigate along his prescribed path so that we might avoid the minefields of life set there by an enemy who desires to steal, steal, kill, and destroy all that is good in our life. God is not winning in this wrestling match with Jacob, so he breaks his hip. It wasn't the endless wrestling that finally broke him. It was the touch of God that led him to surrendering his will to him. The story of Jacob tells us that we serve a God who both blesses and breaks. Why does God break Jacob's hip? Why does he cause Jacob to limp the rest of his life? How can a compassionate God touch our lives in painful ways to break us? If he has to break your hip to get you to surrender your will, and stop fighting him, then he will do whatever it takes for you to give up your self-will that has led you to so much hurt and pain. If the blessings of God and the promises of God and the provision of God and the protection of God does not lead to your surrender, then he hopes that the pain in your life will. You see, Jacob had all of those promises. God had met him in this place before he was going to meet Esau, and he said, listen, I'll protect you and I'll provide for you and my presence will be with you. I will bless your life. But that wasn't enough for Jacob. So God decides that maybe pain will be enough for him to finally surrender his will. Let's read verse 26. Then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Right here, Jacob is no longer fighting. Now that he is broken, the only strength that he has left is to hold on dearly for his life to God. God, I will not let you go until you bless me and do what needs to be done, God, to change me, to change my life, to change the man that I am. Jacob is finally in that place of desperation. God, I see clearly now what myself will has wrought in my life. I see how my pride and arrogance and independence and manipulation and attempts to control my life and the people and circumstances of my life have reaped for me near destruction at the hands of my brother. God, you and you alone are the remedy for what ails me. I'm holding on for dear life. Help me. Give me the strength and courage to do it your way, for my way has made a mess of everything. Why does God tell Jacob to let go of him before daybreak? It's because in the extreme darkness, Jacob couldn't clearly see his glorified face. Remember what God declared to Moses, no one can see my face and live. In our sinful state, we could never withstand the brilliance of God's absolute holiness and righteousness and purity. Jacob has to let him go before the sun rises or he will die. Let's read on in verses 27 and 28. 
What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Obviously, God's not asking his name here because he doesn't know what it is. He's leading this broken, surrendered man to understand that with his new surrendered heart comes a new identity. Jacob, your name, which means deceiver, supplanter, which what your life was all about, your self-gratification, your self-actualization, your self-satisfaction, this is no longer who you are. As Israel, you knew your identity will be greater than who you were. You'll be my representative on earth. You will take part in fulfilling the promise, my plan of redemption on earth. I will give you purpose through your pain. Know how this points us to the gospel. That in Christ, those who have been saved, those who have placed their faith and trust in him, who have been given a new identity as precious and beloved children of God, adopted into his family, approved and accepted, have also been given a new purpose that is so much bigger than living for self, but to live for him and his kingdom. That same man who showed up to wrestle with Jacob is that same God who showed up as a man to die on the cross for your sins. It's Jesus. This is the God that you've been wrestling with. So how can God say that Jacob prevailed? He says that he prevailed against men and God. In the end, Jacob didn't win the fight. Jacob didn't win. Israel did. Who you will be after God's breaking is greater than who you currently are. On the other side, you'll be stronger, freer, filled with more peace and joy, more bold, more selfless, more able to persevere by faith when the storm clouds of life begin to surround you again. That's how we all prevail through God's breaking. Verse 29 then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And I think this is beautiful. I, I don't want you to miss this. Please tell me your name. Before Jacob was broken by God, all he wanted was things that he believed would lead to his joy and happiness. Esau's birthright. Isaac, his father's blessing. The inheritance rights. The land and possessions of his father. Rachel's hand in marriage. But now he wants to know God. He's asking God his name in the same way Moses did before he went before Pharaoh. Because Moses needed the confidence that came from knowing God, who he really is in a deeper way, so that he could take on the mission that was assigned to him. Jacob, in essence, is saying to God, I don't need you to bless me with things. Just let me see you in a new way. Let me know you more deeply. Let me experience you like I've never had before. And this one is the results of your breaking. You'll find that you have a greater hunger to know God. To hunger for him in ways that you never did before. He took you through the pain of facing what your self-will has led to. Let's go ahead and read the final three verses. 
verse 30 through 32. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. Finally, we see Jacob identify clearly who he was wrestling with. For he says, I saw God face to face and I lived. Jacob left his encounter with God having a permanent limp. It would serve as a reminder for the rest of his life and to the nation of Israel the pain that is involved when refusing to surrender your will to God. It happens to all of us. For we all carry hurts and wounds and scars that have resulted from our own stubborn refusal to submit our lives fully to God. If we read on in chapter 33, we would see that Jacob's greatest fear never came true. When they finally met after 20 years, Esau greets Jacob with grace and love and forgiveness and they reconciled his brothers. Sometimes it takes brokenness and surrender to God to see relationships healed and mended and reconciled. Chris, if you come, come on up. Before I close the message today, I, I need to share one more quote from Pastor Howard John Wesley. He says, be careful of religious cliches because some of them are not theologically accurate. Like, God will never put more on you than you are able to bear. Wrong. That's the sweet God. But the real God will load on you and load on you and load on you until your strength and self-will are broken and you begin to cry out to God and declare, I can't handle this myself. I can't get out of this by myself. God, I need you more than anything or anyone in life. You see, it's not that God won't give us more than we can handle. He won't give us more than we can handle with God. But if you're not submitted and surrendered your will to God, then he'll keep loading on and loading on and loading on until you're so weighed down that you realize, I can't get through this without God. And that's just because he loves you that much. And he can see clearly how your self-will is causing havoc and chaos and destruction in your life. I know there's people here this morning who have been wrestling with God. Maybe you didn't realize that that's what you were wrestling with before this morning. And like Jacob, you feel like you've been winning. Well, you don't feel like you've been winning because it really doesn't feel like winning because you're experiencing the pain of heartache that has become the result of your self-will. Some who through their own sin, disobedience, and rebellion have dug a deep pit for themselves. In their self-will have tried to scratch and claw their way out of their own pit only to muddy themselves and muddy the people around them. Oh, and maybe you've tried to dress up your pit and make it look better. You know, you place some furniture in your pit and some curtains and, and put some wall hangings up on your pit. But that's really only like what they say of trying to pretty up a pig put a little makeup and a little lipstick and maybe a, a dress I 
Then there are others who have avoided God's will so they can stay comfortable and safe. Who live their Christian life passively and unengaged and uninvolved, half-heartedly, independent of community life in a way that God describes as lukewarm. You know, and, and I think as Christians, sometimes we really believe that it's those people who have dug this deep pit because of their skin and their sin and sometimes their scandalous sin. Well, those are the ones that God are disgusted with. But if you remember in the book of Revelation, as Jesus speaks to the churches, he speaks to one church in particular, and he says, Christians, I'm calling you out because you're lukewarm. And you know what it says about that? He says, I vomit you out of my mouth. You see, God is more disgusted with Christians' lukewarmness than he's disgusted even with people who are in grievous sin who've dug a deep pit for themselves. Because you're living passively and unengaged and, and just floating around through your Christian life trying to stay comfortable and things be pleasant and not surrendering your will and your life to God and what he wants to do in your life and what he wants to do through your life and how he wants to use you for the kingdom. amazing thing about our God is he's here right now to meet you exactly where you're at. Whether it's a pit of sin or it's in a state of lukewarmness. He wants to give you the opportunity now, right now, to confess and to surrender your will to him and allow him to start doing that loving work in your life that he's wanted to do for so long. Maybe it's time to allow him to break your hip, your stubborn will, so that he can begin to give you the kind of life that maybe you once dreamed was possible, but you've resigned yourself to thinking it's no longer available to you. And let me say, with your God, the blessed life is always just waiting. One surrendered will away from being in your grasp. We'll have some prayer counselors that are going to be spread out through the room. And if prayer counselors, if you get up and just find a place, you know, in a corner, in the front, in the back, so people can see where you are. Um, you know, these people have been chosen because they're loving and they're sensitive and they're caring people who would just love to come alongside you to share your burden to hear your confession and pray with you and pray for you. And there are people who know how to hold a confidence. Nothing you share with them would ever go any further. But maybe it's just time for you to let someone know, that's me, I've been living in a pit I've dug for myself. Or that's me, I've been living as a lukewarm Christian. I've not been where I should be spiritually for a long time. I've allowed excuses or my comfort or my hurts and pains from my past to prevent me from a life of surrender to God. This is your day. I believe that God has led you here for this reason. That's not to say that every single person who's sitting here needs to go move towards a prayer counselor. But you see, th this is how 
God has arranged it, and this is how he unleashes his power in the life of somebody who's willing to be real and honest and go to somebody else and say, this is me, this is where I am, and I've tried in my own independent self-will to get out of this place, and I haven't been able to, so now I'm taking this step with you, God. I'm letting somebody else know and say, please pray for me. I believe God's led you here this morning for that very reason. That maybe you could look back and say June 28th or Mar May 28th, 2023 was a milestone day for me. When I look back and I see my road to real living with God started that day. You could actually leave here unchanged. Or you could begin to start this journey with God and find that life that he wants you to have with him. So we're going to Take a moment of prayer. Everybody's just going to sit here and they'll close their eyes and they'll be praying and talking with God. And if you feel prompted, don't worry about what anybody else is going to think about you getting up and going to pray with somebody. Because most of the people here will rejoice that God is working in your life in this way. So let's go ahead and pray. And if you want to pray with a prayer counselor, um, just find somebody around the room and and it could be somebody that's even sitting next to you that you know really well. But let's go ahead and just spend some time in prayer.